Welcome to our podcast, Who Isn't Fucking Crazy? He's Doug Engelman, visiting assistant professor in sociology at UNCW. And she is Stacy Colomer, director of the School of Social Work at UNCW. And we are here to answer the question, Who isn't fucking crazy? here this morning with an interview we've been anticipating for several months now. We're very excited for Bill Kaczynski, who serves as the UNCW Director of Military Affairs, and he is going to share with us lots of things, but mostly we're going to dig into how can we better help student veterans who are dealing with mental health challenges. But before we go down that road, Bill, can you tell us, you know, a little bit about yourself? How did you go from the military to ending up the director of military affairs at a university. What was your road? So I had a kind of an interesting background. Most enlisted members of the military don't already have a college degree. Most go in as an officer. Um, but I had looked at a path for what I really wanted to do as a career. And our small school wasn't recruited by one of the three-letter agencies very much. So I went into the military thinking I'm going to do a short stint and transition from that to one of the agencies, which I almost did turn down the position, but as I got to that critical point of do I stay in or do I get out, um, decided to get out, applied all over the place, and this was before you know Indeed and LinkedIn and everything else. So you know you're photocopying resumes and mailing them out or hand delivering them, and applied here at UNC Wilmington, and ended up getting selected to work in the Science and Math Education Center, which perfect transition for me. A lot of the transitions that all service members go through vary, but most of them aren't are really good, to be quite honest. They uh, are lacking a lot of uh, things that would help with that success. But uh, I got to the university, and to go from kind of military world to university world was real, real strange at first. And I already had a, a degree in secondary education, but it was all Bachelor of Arts and Social Sciences. And I'm working in the science and math education center, so I had very little college classes, not to mention a five-year gap between those last college courses. And so it was a big learning curve, but I learned an awful lot with some great, um, not just uh, supervisors, but the faculty and staff at the university. And, and uh, so over time, um, that was just, you know, I, it was like the job made in heaven for me. I really enjoyed working with teachers and, and faculty and, and so forth. And then I got a wild hair with my, my best friend that retired out of the military and said, hey, send me your resume. I think I've got something for you. You can come work back together. And I'm like, oh, this will be exciting. Two hours later, I'm getting interviewed from a guy in Iraq for a 13-month position in Iraq during the height of the war. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and you've got two days to let me know if you're, if you're, uh, if you're on board with this. So that was a quick conversation with family and there I was 10 days later in lovely Baghdad in the height of everything. and So that uh, was an interesting uh, evolution. Came back and of course that time frame, you know, 2009-10, the economy wasn't very good so didn't have a position here at the university. Worked a little bit at Cape Fear and then 2012 was when I came back to UNCW. 
thank God. Um, really missed uh, a lot of just great friends and just the, you know, structure of the university and just, you know, having the options and abilities to continuously learn and better yourself in so many ways. And so I worked in the chancellor's office and after, you know, working in that role is when, you know, this position or opportunity came about. So I'm very thankful for uh, Chancellor Sutterelli to, you know, look and see that here we are. You know, we've always kind of had military right from the very beginning within our DNA and taking care of service members, their families and so forth, but nothing was ever, you know, structurally put in place as an office. And so that's how that came about and basically appointed me the first director and two weeks later I was briefing the Board of Trustees on what the Office of Military Affairs is, what it's going to do and how we're going to do it. And that was a little ominous because didn't have an office, I didn't have a budget, I didn't have staff, and okay, what am I really going to be doing here moving forward that's going to, you know, enlighten the trustees, but also, you know, support, you know, what we're going to try to do with this office. So here we are today, 2016 to 2023, and in Veterans Hall, and almost doubling our student population for who we serve, and, and uh, getting to collaborate with one of the faculty and the staff, so... Beautiful offices. Oh, un unbelievable. It's, uh, I had a, an alum come by yesterday who graduated in 2012 and was just, you know, floored by everything he saw. It's like we had a small little corner on the second floor of Fisher Student Center. It was our little space for military and to go from that to seeing this building and all the different programs and opportunities and resources and support mechanisms has been wonderful so we're, we're trying to get that word out to all of our alum that say hey you know you have something to be proud of from the university but also veterans hall and, and all the different things that are going on here to continually support our military whether they're still here or they've transitioned out to you know a grad school or a phd program or a great career so great story um sounds like you really feel like the university has done what it should be doing uh, or should have done in, in the past decade, but um, how do you feel about where we are right now? I know I'm jumping ahead, but are you satisfied with the investment we're making? In most, most definitely. Um, you know, to arrive in the mid-90s, and we were a much smaller university, that obviously challenges with things, but um, trying to identify even faculty and staff that have ties to the military. And for us, you know, uh, we consider anyone that's on active duty reserves or National Guard, if they're retired from military service, a veteran, a spouse, or a dependent, they're all part of our military family. And so that kind of opens up the aperture then to our faculty and staff who fall, a lot of them fall within that uh, spectrum. And now that they understand, you know, kind of what we're doing, but also want to include them on the process. And what that in turn does is the students pick up on it right away. So just knowing that a faculty member or a staff member has a little bit of understanding of their military life, maybe some of their experiences, or they themselves have served, it changes the dynamic. You can see a sense of ease, like, okay, they'll at least understand if I approach them with, you know, some tough questions or I've got, you know, life challenges that I'm time, still trying to deal with that I may need some time here or there. That changes the narrative mm -hmm. tremendously. And so uh, still being, you know, somewhat in a senior administrator role, um, that also helps out an awful lot. A lot of uh, 
a lot of my counterparts sometimes are, you know, in a lowered, I guess, tier at their university. And not that that's any worse, it's just I would ask, you know, some, you know, when's the last time you've talked with your chancellor or your board of trustees about what you're trying to do or some wonderful things that you're, you've done over the past year? And they may say, oh, once this year or twice this year. And so I feel fortunate that I have, you know, weekly or monthly interactions and then I'm part of the external affairs committee with the board of trustees so every quarter I have to report on and so forth. So to me that validates our office and our mission, but also the support mechanisms that we have in place for our students. Well, you might be interested in this quick anecdote. Uh, it just happened very recently. One of my students, I teach a course called Sociology and Mental Disorder, and uh, I talk about my experience with uh, my daughter and uh, her family who was in the military for 20 years and the challenges, and I know, I recognize immediately when I see somebody who's former military or current or, or a spouse and try to address that in my course and uh, this individual came up to me two or three weeks ago so that's halfway through the semester and said I'm really struggling with uh, anxiety stress mm -hmm. I forget how we exactly phrased it but he said do you know who I can talk to and I was uh, gratified that he was willing to do that and kind of what you were just echoing what we were just talking about and I actually because I had just heard about you from Stacy. I gave him your name. I don't know if you, you if he contacted you or not, but uh, um, I think the faculty, I just will say this, and this is across the board with mental health in general with students, faculty need to be educated more on what to do, signs, uh, how to reach out, how to uh, empathize with sure. students. We almost always know who's a former military mm -hmm. or a military spouse, etc. cetera. Um, and I think we, we need to be able to be more open in reaching out to them or being more open to them in the classroom. Well, luckily we have opportunities for that here at UNCW for our faculty and staff. Obviously we offer green zone trading, which is kind of a welcome to military 101. And we have it in a variety of contexts. So if you need a, a short, you know, 45 minute, just completely online, like a webinar, that's available. If you want to do a two hour session, or if you want to do a, a much more deeper dive, we have those opportunities as well. And just the number of departments and other faculty and staff that have gone through that, it's just made it so much easier for them to have these conversations or understand, okay, maybe I specifically can't help you, but I know exactly who can, or at least point you in the right direction of all the resources maybe you're looking for or needing. So that's important. Um, then again, obviously, you know, with our office, right on the first floor of Veterans Hall and, and so forth. Um, anytime that, you know, a student has questions or concerns or is feeling anxiety, you know, that's what we're there for. So, and we can recognize that as well. And so I think a lot of times, like anyone, you know, it's that first step is just making the actual, hey, I just actually need to go in and talk to somebody. Because a lot of the military are like so skittish at times because they don't know who to trust. And so if you develop that trust, then it makes this process so much easier. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? So I guess one, what is some of the unique aspects of someone who's leaving military life and why that's a challenging time? And then why are people from the military skittish of who to trust? So in the military, um, you develop trust immediately 
with your fellow service members because all through the training and if you're going down range, you have to rely 100% on that person from left and right of you, that they're going to have your back and you're going to have theirs because that type of environment is life or death. And it could be life and death for the service member or for those you're going over to protect, which a lot of times it's a lot of innocent women and children and other civilians and so forth. And so when you develop that trust really quickly, then all those other things you don't really have to rely on. I can tell from the moment somebody comes in, the next day, the next hour, something's wrong because you've, you've been opened and they're open with you. So you know everything about their family, you know everything about what they're thinking they're doing. Because before you go in outrange, you gotta be 100% good. Because if you're not, you're thinking about everything else other than what you should be doing in your job and that's when bad things happen. So you try to develop those trust mechanisms and so forth. So for service members and their family members, that trust is critical. Venturing from that world where you know what you're doing pretty much every day when you're getting up, where you're going, what your role is, when you're eating, you know, when you're deploying, you know, when you're coming back, you know, how much time you have left, and all these things are pretty much set in schedule for you. And you're on autopilot a lot of times. You're around folks that you trust. You know where all your resources are at. And then when you go from that world of working in a team environment with all those factors involved, now you're like, hmm. I don't know anybody, it's like being PCS to another location because a lot of military members move from location to location, so now i got to start all over. But this world here, especially higher ed, now, well, Stacy, tell me what you think about this. Like, I was never really asked for my opinion on stuff. I was told this is what needs to be done, go get it done. And this is the intent, and that's what you run with instead of, well, this is what I'm thinking or my opinion on this. That, that doesn't fly so much in the military circles. So, Having, well, if I decide to get up and go to class today or if I'm late to class, well, it doesn't have the same consequences if you get up and you're late to work in the military. And so a lot of these things like that are, are different. Um, you know that your family's pretty much taken care of. So you transition out knowing that, okay, every two weeks I have a check. All of our medical stuff's taken care of. My housing stuff is taken care of. Hmm, now I don't have that so much anymore. I may have GI Bill benefits, but they don't cover all the different things that are part of them going to school. You get X number of monies allotted for a housing allowance each month, which in this market where we live doesn't even cover just the rent. So most of our, our transition folks you know, have life outside of class. So a lot of them have jobs or family members or children. and so. You add that to the mix of, okay, how am I still supporting them while trying to figure out higher ed? And, you know, who's my tribe? Who do I trust? Who do I go and see if I have, you know, some issues or questions and so forth? So it can be a little, little challenging at times. So what we're trying to do is back that up a little bit, get to them much earlier before they arrive and let them know that, hey, here's your tribe. Here's all the resources if you need it for family, for housing, part-time employment. Here's your other resources on campus. Here's how you process your GI bills. Here's how you get through here. Here's how you go and talk to your faculty. If you're still serving in the reserves and National Guard, perfectly fine. But as soon as you know your schedules, 
convey that immediately to your faculty members to let them know, hey, um, next month I've got a training on this thing that I'm required to go to. Can I get advance notice on or return to my, you know, homework or whatever, you know, a few days early or maybe on the back end because once I go to a reserve, you know, time frame from Friday until Sunday evening, I may not have any, you know, opportunity to have, you know, a laptop or a cell phone or anything else. And so small little things like that can really, you know, make things easier. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what, what what is the population at UNCW of military or military dependent? So what we know is a little bit different than what actuality may be because some folks when they depart the military are like that was my previous life. I'm just John Q student here at you know UNC Wilmington. So I'm not going to list myself as you know being tied to the military. I just want to get through the next thing. So based on you know missions, what Registrar has and IRP has, we have around 2,150, so 2,150 military-affiliated students. We think the number's higher, um, and so sometimes you know what's reported in one end, and then you go to financial aid because they're actually using benefits, but they didn't list themselves as military. So we think there's probably an extra 100, 150 students that fall into that that pattern and that also includes our graduate students because a lot of the graduate students there was there's really no room on their applications to discuss their military background so a lot of times that goes unnoticed or unchecked in the back so I'd like to shift to a discussion about the the very basic uh, right normal understanding of what military folks are dealing with this PTSD mm -hmm. and I wonder if you could just kind of briefly summarize for us what the different characteristics are and what histories might result in an individual or their spouse or family member feeling sure. these kinds of having these kinds of experiences. Because I think a lot of people know about PTSD, but and you hear it associated with the military often, but I don't think there's a great understanding of actually what that means and, and well, how it, it well, manifests. Let's see if I can uh, frame it in a little, a little better light for, for you and for those listening. So a lot of folks that operating the space um, a lot of times they want to drop the D because it really isn't a disorder it's not something you were born with it's individuals that are having a normal reaction to an abnormal event or experience so it's not just solely confined to those in the military and I think back a few years ago there was a, a mother who intentionally drove her vehicle off the road and off the bridge here in town with her children in the back because she wanted to end their lives. The three-year-old survived. What do you think that three-year-old's going to go through for the rest of their life? That's a form of post-traumatic stress that, mm -hmm. but people don't think about that. People may have a house fire in which they lose everything. Maybe lose their, their animals or a child or whatever else, a loved one. That's a form of PTS. So in the confines of, of for our military, you know, some of the some of the things that they have seen, but it's not just what they've seen. You have to include all the senses in there because there are smells. There are, you know, sounds of things that will trigger, you know, um, what you smell, the whole nine yards, taste, the whole nine can put you back in a good place or a bad place in a fraction of a second. So understanding, you know, where these folks have been, what they may or may not have seen, and obviously a lot of the, you know, 
counselors and such that generally have probably the most success in helping folks out are ones that have already been there and understand it because they're still dealing with it themselves. And I think that's where, again, that trust factor comes in. So up the road in Jacksonville is the Combat Vet Center. They operate specifically in that space to help those and their family members process all those things that they saw and experienced because it also gets transferred down, unfortunately, to the family members. So there is secondhand ETS by you know, spouses and children because they see it every day and they're trying to learn how to process it. I guess in some respects it's no different than somebody having you know, a problem with alcohol and going to AA, but also then bringing in their family to understand the symptoms and you know, how, do you, how do you get through each day, but what can you say, what can you do, how do you support? So very similar things within, within mental health, obviously, and with PTS, you can tell when people are, are starting to withdraw. You know, they're, they're not sleeping, they're trying to cope with just like, you know, other issues that people have with depression or, or whatever, um, sometimes alcohol, sometimes drugs or whatever it is. And then if you add in the other factor, which you know, is commonly referred to as the, you know, combat cocktail. So I've got folks that I know that were on 10, 15 different medications prescribed you know, as, as they've come back from, you know, these experiences and they're taking one to bring them up, one to bring them down, one to do this, and they're walking zombies. Mm -hmm. And so how do you figure out how to hopefully limit as much of that that they're on so they can actually get on and have so much of a, a, a more normal life? And uh, so that's always something to look at. So are they using, whether it's prescribed or if it's alcohol or whatever else, you know, sleep deprivation is another one. Um, or they're just trying to do as much as they can and never rest on anything. And so you can see them walking around and just constantly pacing or, or whatever it is. And, you know, there, there's so many different things. And each, you know, individual is different. There's, you know, mm -hmm. their experiences. Every, everyone has a different experience. You can't lump everyone if they're all on units seeing this because how somebody processes it. You know, it's, each person is different. I mean, so if that it helps, I yeah, I just wanted to kind of get a, a, a more of a base understanding, and I, I love the fact that you dropped the term disorder from that because it's it is not ingrained and, and it's not something that's natural, right? Um, so I think that covers what I that, that achieves what I was uh, asking you for. So thank you. That's excellent. Appreciate it. So um, in your position, what do, what do you think faculty should do better? How could we better help you well, I, with I appreciate that question. Um, again, you know, we would love for our faculty to, to take the Green Zone training. Separate from that, we also have a library of wonderful books, and I have um, multiple copies of one that's called See Me For Who I Am, and about... Uh, Five, five years ago, through College of Health and Human Services, Dr. Dean Hardy helped facilitate this, but I brought in a friend who is a uh, wonderful writer. Um, he writes for both Johns Hopkins, um, the GAO, but he teaches a reintegration class back in uh, Northern Wisconsin at a university for service members coming back from, from war and so forth. And in the class, um, he always has challenges by getting his students to 
to open up and write their experiences because most of them won't talk to them about anything. They even didn't want to write anything about it. And so what David did was they had a, um, a forestry program at the university, and so they had their own paper mill right there on site. And so he got this wonderful idea of, okay, so you're going to bring in your utilities or your camis or your you know, normal work you know, clothes, the camouflage clothes. Bring a, bring a pair in with you to class next week. And then what they did was they walked down to the paper pulp facility and each one put their utilities into the shredder, which then in turn went through the system. And at the end, it turned out camouflaged eight and a half by 11 paper. So this was their, their paper. And he said, now I want you to write your experiences down. And they all ran with it. Students that you couldn't get to write more than a couple sentences, maybe a paragraph for writing, you know, 30 pages of stuff. And you could see that it was like this burden had just been lifted. So he asked 20 of them for permission that could we put this in a book and then share it out to other colleagues. And it's unfiltered, it's see me for who I am. And it has, you know, male, female, most often it has the whole spectrum. And so as I was, I loaned them out to faculty that may have an interest in wanting to learn more about their military students. And invariably all of them come back, it's like, oh my God, that's John in my class. Oh, that was Mary last semester. Oh, now I really understand what mm -hmm. what they're thinking, why they're sitting in the back of the room because they want to have their back and be able to see everything. Or the number one disability that service members have is hearing loss. But many of them don't go to get checked for it. So if you have hearing loss and you're sitting in the class, especially in the back, and you look like you're disengaged, it's because you're not hearing everything you're supposed to be hearing. <laughs> and like. Come on, guys, get with the program. I mean, think of how much easier life would be if you actually heard what your faculty was saying or you missed that one important term or concept. You know, that, that's a difference. So, you know, getting them to understand those. But um, resources such as that, I think, have been real helpful. Um, every Wednesday morning, we do pancake breakfast. And so, yesterday morning, we had the College of Health and Human Services academic team came in and and uh, Dr. Lance was flipping pancakes, but it was a chance for their team, the team there, to come in and interact with students and just learn a little bit more about you know their world, but also, hey, you know, if you thought about doing this or I'm, I'm having a challenge in this class, well, I never thought of that. So anything we can do to facilitate, you know, faculty or staff coming by, I mean, we have an open door policy. There's no appointments ever needed. We'd love to when faculty want to come in or staff and just interact and, and find, you know, some common ground. So so to speak, but that's probably, those, those three things are probably the, the most utilized, but also probably the best, uh, best ways to, to do that. That is really creative, yeah, that yeah. professor, it's amazing. Well, it was interesting because when David and his best friend were in high school, David went off to play college football, he's 6'5 and 280, so he was a defensive lineman, his best friend went into the Marines. Fast forward four years later in three deployments, his friend came back, he was a raging alcoholic, he was severe PTS, TBI, something nine yards, and he was ready to, you know, commit suicide. And David's like, I finally reacquainted with him and it's like, I gotta figure out this this process. And he's like, Look, what do you want to do that I can help you with that we're gonna we're gonna change this? And he said, Well, all right, let's run an ultra marathon, fifty miles. If you think you wanna help, let's do it. Mm -hmm. 
And David's thinking to myself, I could barely run two or three miles. I'm like 275, 65, a defensive lineman. Okay. Sure enough, they ran it. And after that, slowly made this, all right, I did your thing. I, I'm going to have a few asks of you. LA guys all changed. He works in, with the police department up there. He's, he's got a family, wife, kids are wonderful. And, but sometimes you have to do some mm -hmm. out of the box, <laughs> you know, thinking, but also challenges and stuff that, you know, okay. If, that, if that's what it's going to take to build trust. Yeah, it, see, that's exactly it right there. Yeah. And that was one of the things right there, reestablished that trust they had years ago that was lost because different worlds they were living in. Found that building back familiarity and, and we built it. So that's amazing. Well, unfortunately, our time is up. We have to have you back again because there's a lot more to this story. To Would love to come back to here. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's been wonderful, wonderful to have you. So so much appreciated. Yeah, I definitely want to tap into your um, thoughts on alternative medications that could help have a lot in that space too, yeah. involved in a lot of uh, local projects and, and uh, organizations that are working on that right now. So, Excellent. All right. Well, you'll come back for a part two. Yep. Most definitely. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was really impactful. Oh, that was amazing. Uh, we could have done another hour with him and uh, easily or, or more, and we got to have him back. We are. I, we definitely need a part two. We need to dig deeper into alternatives. Um, for medication for people who are suffering with PTS. Uh, when we were offline, he spoke a little bit about the possibility of medical marijuana and psychedelics, and so we need to bring him back, dig deeper into that. And I definitely think that we need to get more faculty engagement in this process. I know he's doing what he can on, on his end, but I think the university and probably department by department have to educate their faculty on the need for them to be more aware, uh, ability to connect, recognize uh, situations in the classroom, and so we got to give him more airtime. Absolutely, right? yeah. and I'm not sure everyone knows about the Green Zone training, no, I so I, it, but, I, yeah. we need to, I was thinking like, oh, I should do that for my retreat this year. Yeah, yeah, so I'm going to bring it up at our, our faculty meeting today. Uh, that I had this interview, and we just need to know more about this stuff, so. Special thanks to our wonderful engineer, Michael Magnanti. Thank you to the Department of Sociology and Criminology and the School of Social Work for their incredible support. We love you guys. Thank you to all our listeners. And don't forget to check out our next episode. Bye now. Take care.